Welcome back to Talking About Glaucoma, the podcast of indeterminate frequency in which I talk with glaucoma colleagues about hot topics in our field. In this episode, I talk with Tom Samuelson, Adjunct Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Minnesota about ad internal trabecular bypass procedures, our current limited choice, and what the future holds with targeting drainage to get to the collector ducts on the other side of the trabecular meshwork. I'm Robert Schertzer, Assistant Professor of Surgery at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth in Hanover, New Hampshire, and we're talking about glaucoma. Hi, Tom, and welcome to Talking About Glaucoma. Hey, Robert. So today, let's talk about uh, trabecular bypass procedures. Uh, I know there's one that you have a particular expertise in. Um, so let's fire away. Sure. Well, uh, my involvement thus far uh, for uh, using a device with an ab internal bypass would be eye stent from Glaucos and uh, the hydrus from Ivantis. I've done ab external um, approach as well with eye science and canalplasty, but I've always said that if you can do it from an ab internal approach and not violate the conjunctivum sclera, therefore not you know, limiting your options later, it's going to be a nice advance. And now we do have that available with um, the approval of the eye stent. So I guess we could just review of all three of those technologies. Are they all approved right now? Uh, canal plasty certainly is um, for several years now. Um, eye stent was approved in the U.S. in July of 2012. And Ivantis Hydrus is under uh, current, currently under trials in the U.S. The FDA trial. Right, and we've had the eye stent in Canada for a few, a few years, so I have experience with that too. But you also had the advantage of doing a lot of the trials for the eye stent, so you, you've done quite a few cases with that. Want to uh, share some of your experience with that? Sure. The, um, I was part of the U.S. trial, and I did uh, collate all the data from the, the U.S. PMA trial and, and went to the FDA to present uh, at the panel meeting. Um, so I'm quite familiar with, with that trial, but also I've been involved with, um, to my awareness, the first ever uh, comparative trials. So, for example, just like the FDA uses Timolol uh, as a yardstick to compare new drugs, uh, it's anticipated the FDA will use iStent as a yardstick to compare new technologies as they come available for um, ab interno uh, micro bypass. So for example, um, Ivantis with the Hydrus is already engaging in trials OUS, um, done, done cases in Santiago, Chile, and Tijuana, Mexico, uh, where you uh, compare, say, one or two eye stents to, say, the, the Hydrus, so that when they do become available, and they're still many years away, but when they do become available, they'll have data comparative data uh, right off the bat, which will be quite nice. So we're involved in those sorts of trials. I've been to Armenia where we had the luxury of putting in two and three eye stents at a time in a randomized fashion uh, to get data that we can't get in the U.S. So the on-label in the U.S. is one eye stent at the time of fake emulsification. Um, but uh, Ike and lots of other uh, North of the border, uh, clinician, uh, clinicians in Canada have, have been telling us for a while now that uh, 
they get better results when they use, for example, two eye stents, but we don't have that luxury right now in the U.S. Right, and, and I routinely use two eye stents when I do the procedure. Um, maybe we could talk a bit about what the eye stent is, though a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with that, and then also compare that to the uh, Avantis uh, device, which is very different in, in that it's uh, a, a, what we call it, an architectural stabilizer for the meshwork. Anyways, if you could just talk about those. Yeah, so iStent is a one millimeter device uh, that on one end is like a half pipe, uh, like a snowboarder might use. You know, it's a half pipe with a, with a hollow or open back side that, that basically occupies one millimeter circumferentially of the canal. So the canal is about 36 millimeters uh, in length, and this is so just a tiny fraction of the length of the canal, one millimeter communicating directly with the anterior chamber. Um, and, and really it's our foot in the door is my, you know, if the, if the um, micro bypass uh, MIGS revolution stopped with the first generation eye stent, I think we'd be disappointed because I think it's just the first step. Um, what's to come, I think, is more exciting, whether it be multiple eye stents, multiple first-generation eye stents, um, or something like you mentioned, the Avantis Hydrus, which is an 8-millimeter device placed ab internally. So you are more likely to incorporate a collector within an 8-millimeter stretch than you are with a 1-millimeter stretch. And so, um, you know, the glaucose answer to that will be, yeah, okay, sure, but we'll maybe putting more than one eye stent in will then increase your odds of getting a, uh, a collector in, and the glucose device is probably easier to place because it's only one millimeter that you're circumnavigating as opposed to eight millimeters. Um, but the, the beauty of the whole uh, uh, subject area is now that we've got these options that are becoming available to us. Um, one other difference between Hydrus and uh, the glucose eye stent is the Hydrus not only cannulates eight millimeters, but it also dilates the canal. And with canalplasty, we've learned that if you can put the canal on tension, then it seems to improve outflow. Um, so there's two ways aqueous can get from the anterior chamber into the canal, a direct conduit by this inlet that you're creating, or you can maybe just improve direct pass-through through the TM by improving facility of outflow with this dilation. And, and all this is in its infancy, but here at the AGS meeting in San Francisco uh, already today, I've had lots of conversations with basic researchers that are, that are studying this very issue. You know, what part of the mesh work do we, do we target? Is it infranasal? Does it matter if it's infrotemporal? Um, can, we, can we create an angiogram-like equivalent that will directly target and say, yes, go right there and, and put your stent in right there so that you maximize your chances of, of improving outflow. Because it's unlikely any uh, cardiac surgeon would just go into uh, a coronary artery bypass and just say, well, let's just put the stent here without knowing where the obstruction is. That's basically what we're doing right now. We're just putting the stent in, in the canal, hoping that we're um, adjacent to a functional collector. and and hopefully in the future, we'll be able to be much more targeted in our approach. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm just thinking about the two stents that I have in my coronaries, and if, if they were just stuck in there and I didn't know that they actually improved the flow, I'd be pretty scared. So uh, good point with, with that for the eye stent. Do we know downstream from where the implants go, what happens to the architecture, and is there uh, long-term changes that 
that happen downstream that may scar over and have these uh, techniques not work? Where are we with that? Well, I think the, any glaucoma surgeon is very well aware of the uh, healing whims of typically conjunctiva and sclera, but I think that we're going to probably be dealing with healing, uh, whether it's in the canal or in the supracortal space or wherever we may be uh, putting these devices. We're always going to have to deal, deal with wound modulation and healing. So yes, I think that's an important area that we know very little about and we need to. Another interesting question, and Doug Ree brought this up during his presentation here at AGS, you know, he said that, um, you know, when we, when we do get um, availability of an angiogram-like equivalent, are we going to target areas of high flow to put our device? That, that area is already working. Uh, is, are we going to be able to make it work better by putting a descent in there, or are we going to target areas that we're not getting flow, trying to create flow in areas of no flow. So that's, that, those are all questions that we don't know the answer to. But the beauty of this new technology is that even with our rudimentary strategies now, we're getting you know, modest efficacy. Not great efficacy, but modest efficacy. Um, but the beauty of the new procedures are the, the amazing safety relative to what we've had uh, up until now. Right, and so I guess you would still classify both of these under what Marlene Moster referred to as glaucoma light procedures, where they don't have quite the efficacy, but there is the greater safety, so we're worth considering doing in that case. Yeah, there's a tendency for uh, glaucoma purists to, uh, to kind of shun some of these new procedures that don't have the dramatic efficacy, um, but no one is advocating these devices for people that have end-stage glaucoma. This is an opportunity to intervene surgically earlier when we've been um, kind of reluctant to in the past. So I think in the past we've, we've reserved our surgical interventions for people that have failed unrealistic uh, medical regimens. Uh, Henry Jampel has a poster right uh, down uh, several paces from where we're standing right now that shows that really we're kind of fooling ourselves when we add a third and a fourth medication. His poster suggests that we're really not accomplishing much with our third and fourth medication, but we do that all the time. And so now maybe we have a procedure that we can do instead of a, a third or a fourth medication for patients on the earlier end of the spectrum. Um, and, and maybe we prevent them from getting to that severe of a disease that, uh, that warrants a trabeculectomy, for example, or a, a Barabelt or an Ahmed or a Maltino implant. Yeah, great points. Um, I know somewhere down the line there's a second and a third generation of the eye stent. Is it, that anything that we could talk about now? Or there's, uh, I know there are clinical trials that that you've been involved with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier that uh, if it all ended with the first generation eye stent, if it ended with the ability to put one eye stent of the first generation in, in an eye at the time of cataract surgery, that's, that's not going to change the world in, as we know it in terms of glaucoma management. But what's coming is exciting. Um, the G2, the second generation eye stent, um, allows for placement of uh, at least two stents. Um, and it's a little different design. I think it's easier to put in. Um, so that's one that's just a straightforward punch correct. punch in. Yes, it's a, it's a direct uh, entry of the device into the canal as opposed to the uh, circumferential type approach you take with the first generation. I don't know which is better, frankly, but 
some of the studies we did in Armenia hopefully will answer that question, what's better one versus the first generation versus the second. I do know the second generation is a little easier to put in. And now, does that go in the same space or this one's going uh, super choroidal? Okay, so good question. So the first and second generation eye stents both go in the canal. They both improve what we've always classified as the physiological outflow system, the, the canal-based outflow, canalicular outflow. Um, of course, that's not to say that the uveoscleral outflow isn't physiological. I mean, we know that a certain percentage of our outflow is uveoscleral, so it is a physiological system. It's just the less, uh, it's the lesser of the two systems for most patients. Now we do have a third. But, but that's again one of those things with where we're referring to in the normal eye, and that the whole flow dynamics could be quite different in a glaucomatous eye, right? Yeah, yeah we, we certainly learned that with, uh, with the prostaglandin analogs that um, classically are described as enhancing uveoscleral outflow. We've learned that some eyes um, have a more dominant uveoscleral system than we anticipated. And so Glaucos makes a third generation. Um, device, which is the eye stent supra, which is the supracroidal device, and transcend uh, has the psi-pass, which also goes uh, a direct conduit from the anterior chamber into the supracroidal space. And as disclosure, I, I do advise and consult for most of these uh, companies that we're talking about. Yeah, so anything else uh, to add here? I mean, the bottom line is a lot of progress has been made. It'll, it will help when we have actual flow studies in living humans to, to see what we're doing and that could help guide our, our uh, device selection and, and our location of where we put these. Anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, uh, that's well said and I think that the, the way to think about these new things is not as a replacement for what we're doing now. It just helps fill that fairly large void in safety that exists between medicines and lasers and trabeculectomy and tube shunts. There's a big void in between, uh, and these MIGS procedures help fill that, that void. Uh, so we have something to offer for a, a larger continuum of patients uh, based on their severity. Great, thanks so much for talking. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, that's our show for today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the RSS feed at wholeoutofrob.com, iTunes, or the iHandbook app for the iPhone or Android device. You can follow me on Twitter where my handle is Rob Scherzer for my latest updates and check out my office website at westcoastglaucoma.com. Feel free to drop me a line at podcast at iguy.org, that's I-G-U-Y dot O-R-G. And if you have a chance, please rate Talking About Glaucoma on iTunes. Please help detect and treat glaucoma by keeping yourself informed. As a reminder for Canadian ophthalmologists, the updated Royal College Continuing Professional Development Guidelines that changed in the middle of 2011 will help you earn more credits. Now, each podcast episode is worth half a credit in the new Section 2 under Podcasts, regardless of the duration of the podcast. You can also use any podcast to inspire you to learn more about a topic and earn even more CPD credits because personal learning projects are now worth two credits per hour. This means if you spend an hour reading up more about the topic discussed today, then in addition to the half a credit for listening to the podcast, you can claim two more credits as a personal learning project on the subject.